Okay, welcome back to another episode. We have a special episode with a special guest, but we want to do first an introduction of what this episode is brought to you by. So me and Natalie went to Femchick Beauty this last weekend, and they were gracious enough to give us two free treatments, and they were amazing. We both got the foot soak, Mm -hmm. and um, I got a facial, and Natalie got the scalp treatment. Yep. And it was absolutely incredible. They greeted us with some basil water. And then we got their seasonal loose leaf tea, which I think this one was cinnamon apple. Apple and panada. Apple and panada. That was what it was. (laughs) And it was absolutely just an incredible experience. The ladies over there were amazing. And they just allowed us to really embody our health with the two-hour treatment that we received. So... We really appreciate it, and if you are interested, they are located in Old Town, um, again, Femchick Beauty. Yes, and we will tag their Instagram account in the description of this podcast if you are local to Albuquerque and you want to check them out. Like Gabby said, they are just really amazing women at their craft and had great hospitality and, yeah, just is such a cute environment. It's a health and wellness spa, so... You can also get your hair done. Mm-hmm. You can get your lashes done. I think that they have. Treatments. Yeah, they also have like injections. And it was like overall just a very, it had good energy. When you walk into a place and you can just feel good energy, that was a place to be. So definitely check them out. And they are amazing. All right. So moving on to our guest today, we have such an amazing person. We have Allie or Alexandria Visole, if you will. Um, Allie and I met, was it two years ago? Three? I think three years ago. Three years ago? We met three years ago. We worked the same job. We were both clinical research coordinators at a hospital here in town, and we were um, running a opiate-based study. And I this was like my first big girl job with my degree, out of college. And so I didn't really know what I was doing. I knew nothing about drugs or the brain or like how opiates affected the brain. And Allie, she was just so sweet and she's so smart and she spent so much time teaching me essentially like neuroscience and like biochemistry of like, she is so, like she teaches so well. Like I'm, she, I don't know, she just did so good with it. And she really helped me feel confident in what I was doing in my job, which was important because, you know, it involved human people. <laughs> what are they? Human, par- <laughs> human participants is what I meant. I got the P word mixed up. <laughs> but yeah, she, she is, she's just so sweet and she's so smart and she's one of the most compassionate, empathetic people I know. And she's currently in medical school, and I have no doubt in my mind that she's going to make such an amazing doctor. She's the type of doctor that I would want if I needed a doctor. Me too. That was kind of making me cry this morning. Yes. This is actually just going to be a podcast of us all crying. Just giving compliments to each other, and then we're crying. No, you're so pretty. Stop. But yeah, so we have her on today, and I'm really excited about what direction our conversation is going to go. We don't really know, but I imagine it's going to be fun and informative. <laughs> so yeah, so um, welcome to the show, Allie. Yay. Thank you for having me. What an introduction, my goodness. It's all true. It really is. Like, I've only known you for, I think I met you first at Natalie's wedding, mm-hmm. and then I saw you at school, and you're just the nicest person. 
Okay, you guys are really gonna make me cry this morning. <laughs> Just embody it. Just cry. Embody. It's okay. Embody my health. It's okay to cry. On a podcast. That's great. That could be some good ASMR, maybe. You know? Just hearing the sniffles and tears. I don't know if the way I cry, I don't think it's very relaxing. It's like really ugly. Like, like kind of crying. So. Yeah. It's okay. I don't do those cute, simple tears. So. so cute. Exactly. No. Yeah, I don't either. I'm like snot and mouth open and just red. I get like the lip quiver. Like I try not to cry oh, some more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was me and Natalie's wedding. She was walking in the aisle. I was so glad there was tissues because... Oh man, I was trying really hard not to make a noise. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, you did great. You did really good. Oh, I loved it. It's so good. When you got to the aisle and then you just started like bawling, I was like, oh my god, I'm done. If you listen to the, like, if you watch the video and you listen closely, you can hear me snort. Were you mic'd up? No, oh, it was just, just that loud. Really snort. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't know. It was. You know what was so interesting about that is, like, I saw nothing. All I saw was Garrett. No. And, like, afterwards, I was so I was so upset because I didn't even, like, acknowledge Harley. Like, <laughs> when I got to it, because I was, like, after the wedding, I was, like, oh, my gosh. I was, like, I didn't even see Harley. Like, how did she do? Was she sitting good? Like, I didn't even, I didn't even say hi to my baby. <laughs> like, what was wrong with me? Because I was just so laser-focused. Yeah. No. Well, do you want to give us an introduction about um, what was your experience like working with Natalie? Oh, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of want to know like exactly what you guys did because I want to hear this education around the brain and how drugs work with the brain. There you go. Um, so the first time I, I guess, saw Natalie was on Zoom. We were doing an interview, and I just I was already taken with her I just thought she was super smart and just I mean so well spoken and seriously and I remember afterwards when Natalie got off of the interview there were two other docs and then the clinical director and myself which was a very intimidating interview I didn't know so many people were gonna be there <laughs> and um yeah I could I can understand that and then Dr. Ketchum was with us and I think he was just staring Natalie down yeah he time. asked a lot of interesting questions he spoke a lot like a lot of the interview was honestly him just talking about what he does and the research and like I think I maybe answered like four questions (laughs) it was like a 30 minute long interview and it was mainly just him talking and I was just like pay attention focus listen to what he's saying in case he asked me questions (laughs) well I think we were all taken especially with your your background and how you went to Africa and did HIV research I mean that that was really incredible what you did so I remember Natalie hopped off the Zoom and we're all talking and they said, so, um, Allie, what do you, what do you think, do you think you'd want to work with this person? And I was like, I was like, yes, absolutely. I think she's awesome. I think we should hire her right now. I'll start working with her tomorrow. Ow. And, um, so what was really cool was when Natalie and I first started working together, I think it just, it was really fast. I feel like we clicked mm-hmm. pretty fast mm-hmm. and we had the same color hair. At the time. At the time. <laughs> now we're on opposite ends. Um, we had the same color hair and we were the same height. Yeah. So everybody kept getting our names mixed up because they would just see us and like, hey, Natalie, Allie. And they would 
they couldn't We are one me. now. We are one. Yes, we morphed into yeah. just one person. So they just started calling us double trouble. No. <laughs> that was it. Toil and bubble, or whatever that saying is. Um, so the study that we worked on was a butamorphine study. So um, it's a drug that... Uh, is already approved by the FDA, but it, we were trying to give it in an injection form. Mm-hmm. And so it's given to people when they want to stop using any type of opiate, like heroin or fentanyl or something like that, or even just prescribed opiates. People can get addicted to those mm-hmm. and have pretty severe withdrawals. I mean, we saw some pretty yeah. intense withdrawals. Mm-hmm. So this medication uh, helps to mitigate the physical effects of those withdrawals. So you mm-hmm. kind of... You can think about, like, I don't know how far we want to get into it. No, but go all the way. Far, go deep. Go deep. <laughs> go deeper, go home. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we have receptors in our bodies, and they kind of work like um, like a key in a lock. Mm-hmm. And so when the right key goes into the lock, it can send a signal or stimulate something. So if your body gets used to having let's say this this key in this lock opens up the door. If you're used to having that door open by opiates and all of a sudden you take that away and you're like, what the heck? This door was just open and now it's closed. Like, what's going on? I'm trying to get in. I'm trying to get in. What is happening? Like and that so, meme of the guy at the gate where he's like, let me in. There you go, <laughs> exactly that. It's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, They're going to quote us in like studies yeah. in the future. <laughs> like, yes, the guy at the door is <laughs> Um, but to, uh, I guess to summarize it, your, your body kind of panics. And so mm-hmm. what we do is by giving this medication, we slightly open the door. So it's, um, we are still activating that receptor, except it's only a partial agonist, mm-hmm. meaning it only binds to like a certain extent. Um, this can really help a lot of people, especially here in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. We just have so many issues. I mean, we saw so many people come in and we were not even the main hospital. So this site or we had multiple sites here mm-hmm. in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um and it was a nationwide study too. So mm-hmm. it was it was very interesting to see cuz like we would have like weekly calls with all the other sites to mm-hmm. report our progress or lack thereof mm-hmm. in our case. <laughs> and um we would like compare, you know, statistics of, you know, um like how many people were enrolled that week, what their symptoms were, how big their withdrawals were, you know, if they did follow up, which I'll let Allie finish talking about, like, the actual purpose of the study. Um, but it was just interesting to see, like, you know, like we had hospitals in, like, Maine and, like, New York and all these other states where it's, like, you know, being here in New Mexico and being so involved and surrounded by the drug problem that we have, it was just always fascinating to me to learn about how other states, like, their drug problems also mm-hmm. worked, you know? Like, for certain states, like, they didn't use any fentanyl. Like, it was mm-hmm. all just heroin or it was all just opiates or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it may be and stuff. And so that was always really interesting to just, you know, kind of get out of your own perspective of, like, oh, we have the worst drug problem. Well, yeah, we're, of course we're going to think that because we're surrounded by it and we see it yeah. daily. Like, we don't really get that exposure to other states and how they're – you know, drug problems are and stuff, but. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the big one here in New Mexico from what we saw, and there's nothing we can really do to help, uh, especially in an ER setting, is meth or methamphetamines. So it was actually kind of heartbreaking at times 
because people would come in and because we were in an ER, people would come in when they were going through really serious withdrawals. Mm -hmm. So withdrawals, we would evaluate it on something called a COW score. It's a clinical opiate withdrawal scale. Mm -hmm. I actually remember the first time we went through a COW score together and uh, we were seeing a patient. We were just doing a random screening. So we would go into random people's rooms and mm -hmm. ask them questions. And, uh, about their drug use. About their drug use. Yeah. Just there is a lot wrong with the study, but there is also a lot good within. We'll we'll definitely get into that because I still have feelings lots about of, that study. Lots of feelings about that study. Um, but I remember we went into the room and I was like, "Okay, Natalie, you're gonna go through this." And I think we had done one or two, and we were having to look at the pupils, and Natalie like went up and just went. <laughs> Well, no one told me I had to be able to measure pupil dilation. I didn't know how yeah, to do yeah. that. <laughs> Let me see into your eyes. <laughs> I thought it was great. I was like, oh, well, we could use a light. I didn't know That's that. That's usually how you check the reflexes and Natalie's just... <laughs> <laughs> she told me to look at their pupils. I... I didn't know, okay? <laughs> I love you so much. I still feel like I don't really know how to measure dilation of pupils, even to this day. I'd sometimes just, like, shine a light in their eyes, and if it, like, responded, I'd be like, mm, yeah, okay, we'll put you as a... <laughs> that was the one that it was hard, and poor Garrett, I'd always, like, rant him about it. I'm like, I don't, like, because I ranted to him a lot about the study, but that was the one thing, is I was like, I got no, like, don't get me wrong, you did an amazing job, but, like, I got no actual training on how to determine... <laughs> Like the response, <laughs> like, but you're like you're a clinical research coordinator with me. It's not like our manager or I don't know the principal investigator ever came mm -hmm. down and actually trained me on how to do this job. That's very true. So, <laughs> so it was just like like you did a good job, and I understood to an extent. But I personally would have loved it, like, because I'm a you know I'm a very visual learner. I would have loved it if like, you know, our PI came down or any of the sub investigators and was like, hey, like, I'm gonna like show you, like shine the light in my eyes. I'm gonna tell you exactly what to look for. I'm gonna tell you how to measure it mm -hmm. with seeing it or actually measuring it with something and like really take me through that step-by-step -step of how to do it. Like with what you taught me, I was able to understand it to an extent of like, I, I could at least identify like, okay, yes, they are having some withdrawals or no, they're not withdrawing at all. But it was hard because we had to rate it on a scale of how like, in, mm -hmm. intense their pupil dilation was and I was just like I don't know <laughs> it's 11 p.m. I want to go home <laughs> I don't know I'm gonna put out the two <laughs> yeah our study hours were um weird jumping around a lot because we were trying so hard to get patients so we would get random calls you know mm -hmm. like hey we have a patient withdrawing and I think the most frustrating part was so if somebody is withdrawing from opiates their pupils are super dilated they kind of look like we say in the, at least in med school, we call it shark eyes. They're just like... <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Black. <laughs> just the pupils so dilated. Um, but when they are, um, let's say they just smoked fentanyl, for example, they will have super, super pinpoint pupils. Mm -hmm. And so um, I remember there were like a bunch of patients who were like, okay, great, their pupils are dilated. And we walk in and all of a sudden they're just pinpoint because they went to the bathroom and they mm -hmm. their withdrawals were getting bad. And so they decided to partake in something mm -hmm. yeah so that was like a I think a fast way that we could tell if somebody was there but yeah no I agree I think it would have been nice if we had a little bit more support yeah like we're 20, 20 how old are we 22 yeah we're we're early yeah. 20s fresh out of school 
I mean, I, like, Allie had worked on a lot of clinical studies. Like, her rap sheet is beautiful. Um, but, like, me, the only, like, studies I had worked on was were the ones in Africa. And honestly, like, I didn't really do as much, like, hands-on with actually coordinating the research, like, how we did in our study that we did together. Like, I was just an intern, so it was more, like, you know, um, you get to sit in on meetings and see how we handle things. You get to enter data. You get to file paperwork. Like, you know, it wasn't as, like, hands-on as what we did. So here I am with, like, literally very, like, three months of experience in clinical research, and I had no supervision. (laughs) And they're just like, here's the study. Have fun. Go measure pupils with your eyeballs and hope for the best and don't get thrown up on. Natalie <laughs> like, just getting in people's personal space, <laughs> not even knowing. Let me see your eyes. <laughs> with the study, so like going back to it, addiction, personally in my life, I've known people that are really close to me that have dealt with addiction, not personally like opioids, but like alcohol and things like that. But for the specific study that you guys were doing, did you find like did you found that it helped? Like how, how could you like bridge that gap between the complexity of addiction and then also like how the actual medicine was working, if that makes sense, you know, cause I feel like it could work on people, but since the addiction is so complex, like it's not really everyone's choice, even if they want to stop off the drugs that they're using, you know, like how, how did you guys manage that in the study? That's a great question. That's a really good question. In fact, I think that's a question that circulates in the minds of a lot of addiction specialists. Mm-hmm. Is where is that, I guess, that gap between needing to stop versus wanting to stop? Mm-hmm. And which one, I guess, is, is better to look at? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. like when and I... Not, there's not a perfect answer, but yeah. I think it's so... Well, I was completely surprised when I was learning about the study and I was reading all of our protocols and stuff that we were treating opiate addiction with opiates. Like to me, that didn't make sense until I met Allie and she explained how our, how our receptors work <laughs> and, you know, full agonist like methadone versus partial agonist like suboxone, what we were doing. And mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I'll, I'll let her talk about the methadone and all the all the stuff because mm-hmm. she said, oh, do <laughs> It's been, a, it's been a while since we've been on this study. Um, I think, so in terms of the medication actually working, I think what you said, like for some people, it works really well. Mm-hmm. For others, it doesn't. And I think that a lot of that stems from, honestly, I think it stems from other factors and a lot of resources. For example, we had a lot of homeless population come in and you know, they're supposed to, they are having all these other health issues mm-hmm. and it's hard to be like, okay, you got to take this pill every day or, oh, you got to also take your blood pressure medication mm-hmm. when they're just trying to figure out where they're going to be able to sleep in mm-hmm. a safe environment or mm-hmm. just get food. So I think that there are, um, and like we had another patient come in who was uh, below the age of 18. So they actually couldn't enroll in our study because they had to be 18 years or older, mm-hmm. um, had a what it seemed like a loving family, um, had a good home, was in a private school, and um, they also were just struggling with the addiction. So there was Mm -hmm. a lot of different, um, let's just say environments Mm -hmm. in which somebody came in from. Mm -hmm. I 
guess when it comes to methadone versus suboxone, so the the um, buprenorphine, which is like the main, that's the actual partial mm-hmm. agonist, um, is mixed with naltrexone. Mm-hmm. And um, when we give that to somebody, it's uh, that's like suboxone. Is, uh, we make it so they can't actually overdose from the medication because it is an opiate. So mm-hmm. you treat somebody with, let's say, they're on heroin. Their body is used to having that signal. And so we say, okay, we're going to give you an opiate that's only going to give you a little bit of a signal so that your body doesn't wig out on us. So then you can try to address all of the other factors that you, or why you're using. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes logical sense what yeah. I'm saying. I need no, it does coffee. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. Let me get I mean, a coffee. Because <laughs> like you said, so like for people who are listening that don't know what like agonists are or kind of the ingredients of the drug that she just talked about. So naltrexone, and correct me if I'm wrong, because like you said, it's been a while since we've been on this study. But naltrexone is essentially similar to Narcan, where, right? So like, because with opiates, so Narcan is a type of, usually it's given through like a nasal spray in the field for EMS. And I almost misspoke. It's naloxone. Naloxone, I okay. Naltrexone yeah. is same. also can be used for opiate withdrawal, but yeah. it's a little different. But I, was sorry, like, I, I was like, I'm pretty sure if we like no. looked at naltrexone. I'm getting One of the one But yeah, so like Narcan, like with EMS and like firefighters, if they respond to like a drug overdose and they give Narcan and they wake up, that's a telltale sign that they overdosed on opiates because Narcan only works for opiates. I don't, understand the science why do you so um a lot of it has to do with like kicking things off of receptors Mm -hmm. um and so a lot of time so the reason why a lot of people can sadly overdose pretty easily is one it's not regulated it's not like okay i need this one particular type of heroin Mm -hmm. (laughs) so it's not regulated at all but it's a depressant Mm -hmm. so it makes you not want to breathe and so that's pretty terrifying so if you see somebody who is um i I saw one person who was overdosing Mm -hmm. from heroin and they were breathing really 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 shallow Mm -hmm. and they weren't waking up and so that's when you would give the uh, naloxone or narcan and you can actually get narcan for free from pharmacies now and a lot of the med students we all carry one with us which is good yeah yeah okay so you guys carry it too yeah they we had um a guy that he used to be an addict, and he actually runs his own program now. He opened a gym or something, and he gives, like, free workouts to people dealing with addiction and kind of like a community base. But he came in, and he gave us, like, boxes of Narcan, and he's like, just have this just in case. And, like, it's always not a bad thing to have it, you know. Yeah. The scary thing with Narcan, though, um, is even if you give it to someone, you should always call 911 for them to take them to the hospital because with Narcan, it's got very short effects. So it wakes them up. But that doesn't mean that they can't go back into their overdose once the Narcan has, like, worn off. And so a lot of times, like, when people do wake up from Narcan, they're like, oh, no, I'm fine. Like, I'm awake now. It's fine. If you are someone who is, like, giving Narcan, if you ever get into that situation, like, insist that they go to the hospital, call 911, whatever it may be, because it's not guaranteed that they can't slip back into their overdose um, after the Narcan's worn off. So that was also like something with our study that we had to really pay attention to as well as like, um, you know, because a lot of times because we were dealing with a lot of homeless population, it'd be just like, you know, kind hearted bystanders that would Mm -hmm. call 
911 because someone was like passed out in the street or something like that. And so, you know, an EMS or fire gets there, they give them the Narcan, they take them here. And so like we'd have to wait till the Narcan would wear off to judge where their withdrawals are and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, kind of going back to like the difference between methadone and Suboxone and like the pros and cons of it is, you know, as we were saying, methadone is a full agonist. So in a way that hopefully makes sense. What that means is like what Ali was talking about. We have receptors in our brain and the methadone is a full agonist, which means that like it takes up the whole space of that receptor. So there's no other like signals that that receptor can have and give because it's just methadone. <laughs> it's all in there. Whereas like Suboxone, like she was explaining with the door, it slightly covers it. So part of it so I like to think of it as like a U shape and you're trying to fill that U with like color. And so if you're like coloring in the U and you get it to the top of the U, that's methadone because it's a full agonist. It's blocking that receptor completely. But like with Suboxone, it's only coloring in half of it. So that receptor doesn't give like the full euphoric effect that methadone does. Mm-hmm. And then like, so the reason why Suboxone is being like really heavily researched now in different forms and emergency medicine and things like that is because with methadone you have to have and this might have changed so I might be wrong so don't quote me but you usually have to have a prescription for it and it's at a clinic that you have to go to is it daily yeah so methadone versus suboxone there's very different ways in which you obtain those and then also just for everyone else so an agonist versus like an antagonist versus a partial agonist so an agonist means that when it binds to the receptor it creates a signal so methadone like Natalie was explaining um, it fully colors in that <laughs> receptor. I love that. That's yes. great. That's how I always picture it in my head whenever you'd explain it. It's just like me coloring. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so it, it fully fills up that receptor. And so it creates the same signal that was there when heroin was used. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive of why would you want to create the same signal that heroin does if you're trying to get them off heroin? Well, the idea is that methadone is a safer medication to use because you do have you have to go to a clinic every single day mm-hmm. and there's both good and bad my feelings about methadone are a little mixed just because if you're trying to get your life together and you have work responsibilities like it, it's hard for me sometimes to just get up and just do my normal activities versus having to go to a clinic every single day when mm-hmm. you're trying to live your life mm-hmm. Especially if you don't have, like, transportation. Because, like we said, a lot of the people in the study were homeless. And so, like, they – if they didn't – I always felt bad, like, because if they didn't qualify for the study, which we can go into the ridiculous reasons why people want to qualify for the study. But, um, you know, we'd give them a list of, like, uh, treatment centers that, you know, offer, you know, Suboxone or Methadone and whether it took insurance, whether it was free, you know, whatever it may be. It was actually a really good resource sheet, but – that's one thing is like a lot of a lot of patients would get really frustrated with us because they either didn't want suboxone they may have tried it before and like Ali said earlier you know sometimes it works for some people and sometimes it doesn't Um, or they didn't qualify for the study and it was just like heartbreaking to see their disappointment and kind of their heartbreak because we go in you know super optimistic that we can get them in this study that we can help them that we can get their life changed and a lot of times a lot of the people that we did talk to actually did want to change there were quite a handful of people that just wanted the withdrawals to stop and didn't really care about getting off their addiction but um, you know, we they 
they'd be so sad that we, one, couldn't really help them. We couldn't really help their withdrawals. Um, and then all we were doing was giving them a piece of paper. And a lot of the times they'd get mad at us because they're like, well, I don't have a phone. How am I supposed to call this? Or I don't have a car. How am I supposed to get to these clinics? Or I don't have, you know, whatever. And so it'd be kind of up to us to be like, um, well, if you go to the corner of like Central and San Mateo, like they give free phones. Um, like I think it's most days of the week. I usually see that booth there. It's like, so you could do that. Like, you know, the bus rides are free now. So, but it's like, it's solutions that they don't necessarily want or like, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a great system. It's not, you know, it's, yeah, like having to go to a clinic every single day, like Ali's saying is, you know, hard enough on its own, but then you add in the factors of like transportation, um, you know, like, I'm not sure if you have to call to, like, make your appointment times for the clinic. Um, but if you do, like, that's a whole other barrier. Like, there's just a lot of, like, socioeconomic barriers that just aren't really thought about or considered. And that was one thing with the study that was really crappy is because it was made out of, um, wasn't it started in Harvard? Yeah. Yale? Okay. I knew it was one of the, like, elite colleges. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it started in Yale. And so Yale's socioeconomic demographic is way different than here in New Mexico. And the people that wrote it in Yale, I think, wrote it more generalized for the population of wherever Yale is. Where is it? It's north? I don't know. It's somewhere. Somewhere not New Mexico. (laughs) And so, like, one of the things that disqualified someone from being on the study is if they were a Spanish speaker only. And I was like... That breaks my heart. And I'm like, I when I read that... (laughs) I was like, what the fuck do you mean? This is New Mexico. Like, what? And so, yeah, because it was, I still don't even really understand why. Is it just because, like, we'd have like to have. not right. Yeah, I think it's because it had to mean that all of the studies documents also had to be translated into Spanish. And that would mean that Ali and I also had to be fluent in Spanish and be translators to work on the study, right? If we wanted to include the biggest demographic in New Mexico. Didn't, because you guys were at Press downtown, and I know when I worked at Press at Rust, like, you guys have Valseras that you can call an interpreter, but you can't do that for, because it's, it's probably, You like have a, to be essentially, like, vetted into the study, because, like, you have, it would be, we couldn't have someone come outside of the study and ask the questions to the people, and we also couldn't just give them a document of it in Spanish and have them read it and answer it on their mm-hmm. own, so... That was one of the biggest, and, like, we'd always get, like, in trouble essentially every meeting because we had really low um, participant enrollment, Mm -hmm. Um, and so, like, on those weekly or monthly meetings that we'd have, they'd always call out New Mexico Press. They'd be like, why are your numbers so low? And it's like, because you guys put unrealistic, um, what is it called? Restrictions? No, restrictions on... um, Inclusion. Inclusion. Yeah, there we go. I was like, I knew there was an actual, (laughs) like, research word for it Um, on, like, what our population could be. And, like, you know, Ali said, like, you couldn't be under the age of 18. Like, you couldn't be pregnant. You couldn't be – well, I mean, that one's a good one. But, like, um, another one was, like, you you had – if you weren't an eight on the cow scale, which is decently withdrawing, like, you weren't withdrawing enough. So you couldn't be in the study. And so you could either wait – uncomfortably with the very valid withdrawals you were already having and wait until you became an eight to possibly get 
the um, buprenorphine because we had a placebo too, um, but it was just like the sublingual suboxone, right? Because we were testing yeah. the actual injection of it. Yeah. Um, so it's like, so a lot of the um, patients would be like, well, no, I don't want to wait to become an eight. Like I like my withdrawals are crappy enough now for me. Like I want help now. And so we'd be like, okay, whatever. And then like my biggest issue with the study is for those that aren't familiar with like clinical research, usually what happens is, you know, if it's not done in an emergency setting, you like come in to the clinic, you get your, um, it's not a contract. What is it called? I'm blanking. Um, where you sign consent yeah thank you you have a what is it called (laughs) you um you like you come in you learn about the study you get a consent form yeah yeah because you should be informed about what you're consenting to and like you'd Mm -hmm. get that you'd usually have like a few days to go over it ask questions speak with your pcp about it especially if it's like Yes, buprenorphine is FDA approved, but it was still an experimental drug in the aspect of how it was being delivered. And so, like, usually with that, like, you would have time, you know, to make that decision, make that informed decision based off of reading the whole consent form. But in order to enroll someone into our study, they had to be actively withdrawing, which meant that they had to consent to an experimental drug while they're actively withdrawing. And I was just like, this is what? <laughs> it's so hard, too, because I feel like addiction is so complex. Mm-hmm. And whenever you're trying to research something having to do with addiction and drugs, like there's so many different factors that play into addiction. It's not like someone wakes up and is like, I want to be an addict and this is I'm just going to do this drug. You know, there's a bunch of whether unfortunately, if they were born into the addiction or they went through something very traumatic in their life and unfortunately they became an addict or whatever it is. Like there's so many different psychological components to addiction as well as, like you said, even in New Mexico, they are not worried about an informed consent. They're worried about, okay, when am I going to get this next thing? Or like, where am I going to sleep next? You know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you accurately test a drug with all the complexities of addiction while not addressing the other things that go into addiction, you know? Because it's like, how did you guys measure the success of the drug? So uh, we had a a 30-day follow-up, and studies. It was was very interesting. Um, And I will just say, just based on, on what you were saying, I think one thing, and especially as a future provider... Two more years when we finally get You got this. We'll see. (laughs) Um, I get really frustrated because I see, even when I was doing rotations as part of my medical school training, I would see these older ladies that say they had some type of injury. This one woman had knee replacement surgery. And they gave her opiates to help her with the pain. And they give her, she's still in pain, so they keep upping up the dose. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, you're on too high of a dose. We're going to stop you. And they just cut people off cold. And it makes me so frustrated to know that there are providers out there that are doing that. And not taking the responsibility that when you are prescribing medications like these that can cause 
withdrawals that are so painful to go through. Mm-hmm. I mean, just seeing people go through withdrawals can just, I mean, it makes you shake just watching them because it's so horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's sad because people are like, I'm going to trust my doctor <laughs> in giving me these medications. I yeah. mean, we saw so many people come in and we had, I remember there was like an 80 year old that got into our study. No. It was because they were over-prescribed. They were over-prescribed and then just stopped, and they were going through horrific withdrawals, and other people thought they just had dementia. Yeah. No. Or, like, I remember sometimes with our study, too, like, we would do pretty invasive, like, chart history searching Mm -hmm. to, like, see, you know. um, Because one thing with the study, too, that, that I personally didn't like is it made me uncomfortable going into people's rooms who were there for pain. Because we had to talk to, what was it, like 30 people a day? Like, was the mark that we had to hit or something? Like, they set that rule for us because our enrollment rate was so low um, that they're like, well, you have to screen at least 30 people. And the screening questions, they're about drug use. And I would always be uncomfortable going into Because, like, I would, you know, we'd scan the ED oncoming board and we'd kind of look and be like, okay, this person could potentially be here for whatever. And we'd look into their chart, their history, all that stuff. And then, you know, like, essentially make the decision, like, should we go talk to them? Should we not? Because it got to the point when we would do our screenings, like, we'd go into, like, you know, a patient's room who was there because they, like, you know, fell off a ladder or something, mm-hmm. or they were having like side effects from chemo or whatever. And we have to go in and be like, so, you know, do you use drugs? And it's like, these people are in pain. Just they like don't want to be bothered. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> are you partaking in any substances? So I'm you? just going to peek my head in here real quick. Hello. Um, <laughs> do you use any drugs? Drugs? Do you use? But like, there'd be people who'd be like, why do you think I'm on drugs? And I'm like, I don't. I'm just trying to do my job. Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Like, you know, unfortunately, like, I've been in the hospital before. Like, the last thing I want is people asking me stupid questions about if I use drugs or not because even if I do if I'm not there for my drug use mind your own business stay out of my room because that was something that I really hated doing so I would always do like really extensive um chart history searches to see if it'd be even like worth my time going to them and having that uncomfortable interaction like there'd be times where I'd look and like this person you know had a history of opiate use and they recovered and last thing I wanted, that was one thing that I really looked for. Because last thing I wanted to do is go to a recovered opiate addiction or addict person with addiction um, and be like, hey, like, are you using drugs again? You know, because the healthcare system fails a lot of people with, addi- with addictions. And last thing I want is like their hard work of, you know, staying clean to be diminished because I have to screen because I just need another person to screen. So I would always do like really essentially invasive chart searches like 10 years back type of look and stuff and it always it'd always be surprising when patients you know who did have an addiction that was you know recovered like 10 years ago that they were there for something and the current provider would prescribe them opiates and I'd be like you didn't even look at their chart like just one simple search and you like you could have potentially started this person's addiction again I mean hopefully the patient advocated for themselves but the patient shouldn't have to because when you're in the emergency room hopefully you're there for like an actual emergency and you're in a state of mind where you know you may not be thinking about oh yeah I I used to use drugs 10 years ago so please don't give me anything you know a lot of times and so I'd always just like look at that and be like are you freaking kidding me yeah like should I go yell at this doctor (laughs) do I have 
Do I have the authority to go humiliate this doctor? Allie would humiliate doctors. And I it loved sucks. it. Because I feel like our medical system is so screwed that it's not even like the doctor's fault. Because I feel like you're kind of like pushed into this system that's like overworked. And like we're only human, you know, like as healthcare providers, you're only human and mm-hmm. you learn what you learn. And unfortunately, sometimes you're just, you don't have the like empathy to like think this is a human being in front of me and it's like I'm just going to do what I learn and put this person on x whatever medication you know and it's not not thinking about the repercussions but it's like that's why it's so important as patients like you also it's a provider patient relationship and like you have to advocate for yourself as much Mm -hmm. like as a provider is educated like they don't know you as a human and you need to be and advocate for your own self and like know what you're getting yourself into because the provider doesn't know everything about you and, yeah you know it's mm-hmm. not everything is missed on your chart and yeah some providers also like unfortunately can care less well it's also you know? like frustrating because I don't remember what it's called but in order to pre- prescribe suboxone or give suboxone in the emergency department which we may be biased to this yeah an x waiver we may be biased to this but I personally think you know suboxone is a better, um, like, I think it's better than methadone to an extent. And so, like, um, when, you know, patients would come in and they would have a history of opiate abuse or have an addiction or stuff like that, in order to get a prescription for Suboxone, you have to be a doctor that went through an X waiver, which essentially... Like, I don't also know how to explain kept, it. That kept changing, too. So you would need an x waiver, which meant you had to take all these additional courses. Mm-hmm. On top of already working all of these other shifts as a provider. And I think ER docs are, are very different because it's shift work. Yep. So you, you go in, you do your work, and then you leave and you're done. Mm-hmm. Versus other docs, like I, I want to go into oncology. So a lot of that is you're still communicating about that patient over time. But, uh, yeah, the X waiver thing just kept changing. And so you would need an X waiver. Then you wouldn't need an X waiver. And I think, too, when it comes to Suboxone and Methadone, there are some people that I've seen do really well on Methadone. Mm-hmm. And so um, a lot of it is is the patient, like, also their lifestyle. Because there's some people that actually enjoy going to clinic every day. It gives them a sense mm-hmm. of schedule and continuity across mm-hmm. their life that they haven't had before. So, but you're, I mean, you're going to be making those decisions really soon. Yeah, I know. It's kind of crazy. I really can't believe it. I'm going to actually be a big girl and actually have to make the decisions on my own. I'm like, what? I'm actually, it's my choice now, but it'll be exciting. I think too, when it comes to, at least even from what I've seen from the like, provider side, how are you expected to get to know a patient, oh my God, I know. get everything you need out of them, plus diagnose them. In 15 minutes. Yeah. We're expected to find a patient, do all of that within 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, and I mean, granted, I'm not, I'm, I still have a lot more years of training, but just from what I've seen, it is a lot of work. And Mm -hmm. sadly, you can't get that patient interaction that you, you might crave or really want. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's being able to walk into a room and connect off the bat. But then yeah. people are, they're not in their best state a lot of times when yeah. they come into a hospital. 
And so that even goes back to the informed consent thing of, yeah. oh, you're withdrawing, you're throwing up, you are shaking. defecating, you are shaking, you are just freaking out. And I'm giving you a 25-page document to with, read to in read. five minutes in order to get you while you're still at an appropriate level of withdrawals. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's crazy like with the X waiver that you have to have that for Suboxone, but you don't have to have it to give opiates, which is... Nope. In my is like that's like we need some type of something on limiting <laughs> opiate prescriptions because it's just so many of them and yeah. you know like Ali said a lot of times your body just essentially starts to crave that medication because it recognizes that it helps with the pain that they're dealing with you know and so like you could come from a very you know loving home very you know be a very healthy individual and then you get an injury and the next thing you know because you were over prescribed medication because a lot of doctors and once again this is kind of like the patient doctor relationship but a lot of times doctors don't explain enough on like the medication that they're giving their patients and once again it's because of like the system it's not necessarily the doctor's fault it's because like Ali was saying you're expected to you know get the history of this patient you know run tests give a give prescriptions and a diagnosis within like an unrealistic time frame and so sometimes the doctors you know maybe in their mind they're like oh well you know, the bottle says what to do. Like, I don't need to explain it. And it's like, it's not talked about enough. All the issues that can come with taking opiates for pain medication and, you know, how to wean off of them or how to determine when your pain levels can go to back to like ibuprofen or something. Like it's not a conversation that's had enough. And so we just keep prescribing opiates and then people you know, like, I mean, I've taken opiates before, like, yeah, shit, I like how, like, I like not having pain, (laughs) you know, and so it's like, it becomes so easy to get that addiction, and then next thing they know, their, their life has changed, because they weren't informed enough Mm -hmm. on how to handle this medication. I think something, too, that's really lacking with the system is, like, like you said, with physicians, you get 15 minutes to diagnose, prescribe, to a patient and then with the difference with physical therapists it's like we get months and each session is like an hour you know but something that's really lacking is that like that connection between the physician and other healthcare providers because you can't expect one healthcare provider to know everything depending on a patient you know like this interprofessional communication is so important and crucial for our patients that it's like we're doing our patients a disservice by not having that whole system working together for that patient in the center you know so I feel like that's something that can really make a huge difference because it's like if we work together and like more minds together as to like oh I know this patient on a three-month basis and whatever you know like something that we can really work together for the success of that patient rather than just on our own mm-hmm. I completely agree and I think that's why I personally like oncology and hematology because there's so much communication mm-hmm. between other types of providers and you're, you're really working with a team in order to um, do what's best for the patients. I remember, you know, we send biopsy samples to a pathologist. So you're communicating with the pathologist and then you say, okay, well, it's positive for this. So now I have to schedule surgery and I'm talking to the surgeons about that and I'm communicating with their PCPs. And so there's a, a lot of communication, and even to, I was really lucky, I went to um, a really good clinic to do my rotation, and even the docs, they're, 
there was no, oh, I'm the best and I know everything. It's mm-hmm. no, I would love other people's opinions because mm-hmm. what if I'm thinking about it this way and the other doc who has other types of experiences is thinking about it this way and then you can kind of come to consensus of what's good for the patient. So I saw that a lot when I was in the clinic and it it was heartwarming to mm-hmm. see. And I think also too, because Natalie and I were in the ER around COVID, mm-hmm. We were just, all the docs were just so overworked. Mm -hmm. Everyone were so understaffed. Mm -hmm. And we were always in code black, which meant every single room in Mm -hmm. that ER was somebody that needed to be admitted to the hospital. But we Mm -hmm. didn't have beds available for them. So they would stay in the ER for like a week or two. And so, and I remember Natalie and I, because we had already screened every single person that was in the ER. And we would wait for people to come in that were hopefully withdrawing that we could get into the study. So Natalie and I would sit in our little cubicle and we would, I remember we would draw different like receptors in mm-hmm. some case for the study. And then we would just hang out and talk for the rest of it. Which was yeah, because like we worked, like the study hours were from noon to 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we would stay late if, you know, a potential participant came in at like 9.50 mm-hmm. and then we'd be there till like 3 in the morning. Oh my gosh. Yeah, stupid. Um, but I also feel like that, the time frame of it, like we weren't allowed, or technically we were allowed to enroll someone outside of the study hours, but like, in my opinion, you know, we'd come in at noon the next day and the security guards, they were super in on our own study and they'd like, sc- <laughs> like, they'd essentially help us screen too. I love that. Um, and they were like, oh man, you had so many good people at like 2 a.m., you know, and it's like, no, like, yeah, you know, I think the study should have been from like 5 a.m. to like, you know, noon or something like that or whatever, you know, kind of more during the time of when people are actually withdrawing. And that was another thing, too, is, like, alcohol abuse is very high here in New Mexico, Mm -hmm. and so is meth, and those were things that prevented people from being on the study. I mean, and kind of rightfully so, because you're just mixing things at that point, and it can be dangerous, but once again, because this study wasn't made with the New Mexico population in mind, and because we do have such a big meth and alcohol problem here in New Mexico, like, that took away so many participants you know, because, like, they'd be withdrawing. It's like, okay, well, are you withdrawing from the opiates or from the alcohol? But regardless, we couldn't enroll them if they had reported, you know, that they were on, if they tested positive for meth or if they reported that they had been drinking mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's mixing all sorts of things and can can mess them up and stuff. And so that was just, like, another frustrating thing of, like, we're, impl- we're implementing a study with a population that doesn't match what we have here. Mm-hmm. And... It's, you know, like I get the purpose of doing it as like a nationwide study, but it's just, I don't know, it was, it made me never wanting to do pharmaceutical (laughs) research ever again. I will say, I think the most frustrating part, and it it didn't even have to do with the study, but uh, there were so many people that would come in. So there's something called precipitated withdrawal, where you can actually make somebody go into a really horrific withdrawal. Yeah. If, for example, let's say somebody um, is on methadone, if I gave them buprenorphine while they're on methadone, I will put them into a really horrific withdrawal. It's called Mm -hmm. precipitated withdrawal. And I remember people coming in because the methadone clinics were closing early due to COVID because they were understaffed. People would be withdrawing from methadone, so I couldn't 
give them anything because you can withdraw from methadone. Mm-hmm. That in itself is is pretty horrific. And you can also overdose on methadone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a big reason why people that are withdrawing from methadone that came to the ER, a lot of the docs couldn't do much for them. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why is because the docs you can't just give methadone. So they would give a tiny little do- or a tiny little amount of methadone and be like, okay, let me help your withdrawals. But the patient's still going through these really mm-hmm. violent withdrawals. And they would just stay there mm-hmm. and sit. And so, and I think that that's changing from what I'm seeing now. But the, I'm on a study, uh, it's a methadone study right now with some of the other students in my medical school class. And it is terrifying to see the lack of monitoring and policies and programs in place for people. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, okay, I'm just going to give you this and you're fine. I think this, <laughs> this population is a lot bigger than people might realize. And there's not a lot in place, especially here in New Mexico, for it. So that I think that, for me, was the most frustrating thing, was to see the lack of resources. Because mm-hmm. even if we did hand them that piece of paper, oh, all of the clinics and all the places you can go for help are full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah, was, yeah, there was a lot that was frustrating. Another thing that, like, kind of frustrated me is we weren't allowed to wear scrubs for this study. Mm-hmm. And it's, I know that sounds kind of silly, but, like, we weren't allowed to wear scrubs, which, thankfully, I never had a reason. No, actually, I lie. I got pee on me one time. Um, but, like, for instance, you know, people are withdrawing, they're defecating, they're vomiting, they're peeing, they're spitting. Like, you know, so we our uniform for this study was, like, business casual. Like, we had to look professional. Like, we were supposed to wear, like, slacks and a nice top. And, like, Allie liked wearing heels. I remember I, like, called her before I started, and I was like, what is, like, no one really, like, I liked my supervisor. Like, she was great, but no one really gave me a lot of information on what to do, what to expect, what to wear, how to measure pupils, how to do anything. And so, (laughs) and so, like, I remember... Um, my supervisor had given me Ali's number to get in contact with and stuff. And, like, even the first day that I was supposed to start, I didn't hear back until the actual first day where it was like, oh, no, you're actually just going to stay home and do your, like, trainings. You don't have to come in. And I was like, like, thank you for letting me know. Um, But so I remember I, like, called Ali and I was like, what do I wear for this? Like, do we do scrubs? Do we whatever? And she's like, no, like, you do heels, blah, 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 and stuff, blah, blah. <laughs> so I went and bought, like, because all the heels I had were, like, open-toed, like, stripper-looking. So, like, I went and bought, like, little nice professional heels and stuff and um, all sorts of, like, business clothes and whatnot. And um, that was one thing that was really frustrating is because, like, here we are coming into, you know, people who – blatantly putting it not in a really good place in life financially emotionally mentally physically and we're coming in in our fancy little suits and we're here to talk about drug use and how like I feel like a lot of times they just perceive like we know better than you and we can do like you know and so to me it was frustrating I actually did my own little study within the study where like I would I would, because I was curious, I was like, okay, I feel like people would relate to us more if we were dressed down, because, like, mm-hmm. anytime that people, like, once again, going to my own experience, of like, when I've been in the emergency room and stuff, if people came in super fancy, I'm like, oh, gosh, like, they're here for insurance, or, like, they're, like, I don't, they're the manager, and they want to see how my care is doing, like, I don't want to talk to these people, like, leave me alone, I'm in pain, turn the light off, shut the door, and, um, And so, like, I would sometimes do it where, like, on some days when I knew for sure my supervisor wouldn't be dropping by, 
I would like come in like, you know, jeans, a t-shirt and sneakers or, you know, something like that. And honestly, I would get people to talk to me more about like their drug use and like, you know, all sorts of stuff than I would when I showed up, you know, in like fancy clothes. And so it was just, that was kind of interesting because like, I feel like once again, going back to the lack of understanding of the population we were trying to work with, you know, and I feel like a lot of times with this study, specifically with RPI, um, we, they cared more about this person being a participant than a patient. And I constantly would talk to Alan and be like, but they're in the emergency room for an actual medical reason. And they're a patient first. Like, they didn't come here to be in our study. They just happened to meet some of the criteria. And so, like, I personally wasn't comfortable trying to force these people into the study in the way that RPI wanted us to. And I think he had good intentions. I think he was just so passionate about opiate use and addiction and stuff that he, and he really believed in the study. But I think because he wasn't there, he was um, based out of a different part of New Mexico. And so he never came into our hospital, which was also weird for a study. But, like, he was just so passionate about it, but I think that passion was, like, ill-guided, essentially, because... Blinded. Yeah. He wanted, he wanted us to do things, like, for instance... So the way that we'd measure the success of the study is they would have to enroll into, like, therapy, and we'd call up... Um, call them at, like, 15 and 30 days, or was it 30 mm-hmm. and 60? It's been a long time. Yeah, I think it was, I we'll just, it was 30 days for sure for, sure, for something. But. We'd call them twice. And so part of the enrollment process, you know, they'd get, we'd have them sign the informed consent form. And we'd get like their, we'd have to get three phone numbers from them, which was also another issue because like a lot of the homeless population, they had like the burner phones, they had like phones with prepaid minutes, or they didn't have phones at all. And so because of that, they couldn't be on the study. So then it was like, well, sorry, like you qualify for everything, but because you don't have a phone, you can't be on the study because mm-hmm. we have to call you. And so like we'd have to call them and, you know, we'd go through a series of questions to see like how they were progressing. And honestly, a lot of the people that did follow the study did have really wonderful results on the therapy and the suboxone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was one thing is like a lot of times the participants would kind of know that they could only be on if they had a phone number so they'd give us like fake phone numbers Mm -hmm. so then we'd call and it'd be like this phone is not in service or this is not a real number or like we'd call on someone who had no idea who this patient was you know would answer and it's hard at that point because it's like how do we figure out if this person knows a patient without violating HIPAA and like getting the responses that we need and so at one point our PI was like well the best way to problem solve this solution is because we had like a research phone that we would use to make these calls. He's like, you take the research phone into the room, you dial the number that they give you and make sure that they answer the phone. And I was like, we wouldn't do that to any other patient. Like that's literally the fear of these people coming to the healthcare system is that we're not going to trust them and that we're not going to treat them like human beings and we're going to view them as less. And I was like, that's essentially what you're asking us to do. I'm not comfortable. Thankfully, our supervisor was like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. That's not comfortable. They're patients first. They're participants if they want to be like we have to remember that they're in the hospital for something they came to the emergency room for something and we just happen to have a study that could potentially help them like so it was yeah there was a there's a lot (laughs) with this study you know Natalie I kind of wish you were going into healthcare because I feel like healthcare needs more people like you Mm -hmm. that can look at look at a human and say you are a person first 
and let's make sure that we address that aspect of you mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure you you feel this also too I I know our programs are a little different but I think especially going through a medical training program I think that uh, the emphasis is okay yes they they're they're people but then you get in situations where you're like all right you got to diagnose you got to do this you got to look at them like this and some of those questions that we ask are extremely invasive mm-hmm. I know I remember the first time you let me do like it was a follow-up someone that was in the study actually came into the hospital or no it was the end of like they enrolled and it was like once they enroll and once they're like essentially coming down from the withdrawals we have to go in and ask so many questions and she's like yeah you can do it and I was like okay cool and once again like no one like our supervisor our PI never went through any of those questions with me prior to this so I'm like there and it's like asking about like really invasive personal things and I'm like about to read them I look at Allie and I'm like I have to ask him this like what does this have to do with opiate use and I would so I would Anytime, now that I knew, like, what the questions were, anytime that, like, I was on my own or even with Ellie, I'd kind of preface it and I'd be like, hey, so just a fair warning. A lot of these questions are very personal, invasive. Like, this is a judgment-free zone. We're here to help you. Like, I really don't care what your answers are. And once again, I feel like that's more believable for them coming from a person who, you know, doesn't look like we're just viewing them as another issue to the healthcare system, you know? So like I, you know, kind of going back to like how we were required to dress, I feel like, you know, being in scrubs or being more casual, like maybe just in a press shirt and jeans and closed toed shoes, you know, we might've gotten better results than coming, you know, in like little blazers and, you know, jackets. And like, although it was, you know, fun to kind of like dress up and have a job that like required that because I've only ever had jobs that needed scrubs. Like, I I just feel like it made us more relatable and not as intimidating. And it made it, you know, more comfortable of an environment just overall, you know, because yeah. we were more comfortable. They, you know, I don't know. It was just... I feel like just doing those simple gestures of prefacing something that's going to be invasive goes such a long way and being like, I know you're human. I know you've been through stuff and this is a judgment-free zone. I feel like those little things like can be overlooked and you should kind of take yourself out of that desensitized healthcare mindset and be like, okay, yes, this is a human in front of me. Like I'm going to try to be relatable to this human and just like even making eye contact or even like a simple like hi yeah <laughs> let me see your pupils <laughs> that's what natalie was trying to do she was just... exactly i was just trying to connect with them through the eyes the eyes are the windows to the soul okay we're gonna preface this session by a good um just stare in my face <laughs> the eyes are the nipples of the face <laughs> i love it okay well kind of Shifting gears, do you want to tell us about kind of your experience in med school and what you want to go into? And also how, like, schooling compares. So Allie went to um, Italy for high school, and she's also trilingual. She's super cool. Um, But, like, do you mind talking about, like, kind of how – I know it was, like, high school, and it was – you know, it's obviously different than medical school that you're in and stuff, but just, like, the experience of medical school and how – 
education different. In Europe is yeah. different than here, and even like healthcare in Europe is different. I don't know if you had any healthcare experience while you were in Europe. I sadly did. Oh, okay. I had <laughs> recurrent ear infections. Oh, fun. And mm-hmm. that was uh, a lot of fun. It was so painful. <laughs> yeah. Um, but med school, so I'm a, I'm a second year. And I'm getting ready to take, I know we were talking about this earlier, but uh, both of us are getting ready to take our boards. Ooh, yay! <laughs> I have so smart friends. <laughs> are we going to, did we say we're going to take it on the same day? Uh, we're, I, I think, I haven't scheduled mine yet. Okay. I'm, I'm already crying thinking about scheduling it. You're going to do <laughs> great, sweetie. We'll be each other's emotional support humans. Yeah. We can just meet up and have some cry sessions, some coffee. I have a cute little spot in the corner of the library. We'll just have coffee and we'll like sit for I found a cry a spot. <laughs> yes. A timer, cry for 20 minutes. Be like, hey, back to work. <laughs> um, so I guess in terms of medical training, it's very different in Europe versus the U.S. So I I was kind of a, a different type of candidate. So I took a couple of years in between, and that's when I met Natalie, in between when I graduated with my undergrad degree and when I applied to med school. And I only applied to one medical school. which And is she got in. The, <laughs> Natalie was watching me during that process, and I think I was a nervous wreck. You were, but it's okay. okay. I mean, <laughs> it's, it is nerve-wracking, especially, you know, when you know what you want, so you put all your eggs in the basket and hope that it they don't break. <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I only applied to UNM. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're the, we're the odd ones mm-hmm. out. But um, so I applied to UNM. I told myself if I'm not going to go to UNM medical school, I'm going to go to Europe, to Hungary, which is where my family's from. And I was going to go to this place called Semmelweis Egyetem. <laughs> Can you say that again? Semmelweis <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Natalie. <laughs> <Summerized> university. Um, <laughs> um, but the medical school training is very different because you actually go into medical school right from high school. Oh. Um, versus here in the U.S., you have to get your bachelor's degree, um, or at least all the prereqs prior to getting into medical school here. So the medical school in Europe is six years versus mm-hmm. here is four. Mm-hmm. So that's a big difference. Um, a lot of medical schools in Europe will make you take the U.S. exams or the board examinations. Uh, even with that said, it's really hard to get residency if you do medical school anywhere outside the yeah. U.S. So I, I'm glad that I stayed here and got in. And uh, It's been... I cry all the time. It's been so stressful. You can do it. Well, so, um, thank you. I'm yeah. support. <laughs> um, but it's been it's been an interesting journey to say the least. I'm glad that I have good friends that uh, propel me to keep going because there are moments when you're at really high stress. And especially before you take uh, any really big final exams, like some of our finals are worth 85% of that block grade. So, yeah. 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 That's a stupid system. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I think they do it to prep us because we're going to be taking a lot of really high stakes exams for um, actually most of our career. (laughs) So I think they just, Natalie's like, I'm so (laughs) glad I didn't go into medicine. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Um, But overall, I mean, you, you just sit and study. And that's really all it is. <laughs> it really is. I, were, I was going to say, that's like, we just oh, sit and doing. study all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's so bad. I'm like, 
in school for physical therapy and movement is medicine, but like literally I sit down for the majority of my day and work out maybe like an hour, an hour and a half there a day. Were, there were a couple times now he's like, are you going to come to the gym? Come to the gym. I'm like, yes. I got to study. So of course I'm going to come to the gym. And I remember there was a time he checked up on me and you're like, how's school? I'm like, it's great. You're like, oh, are you working out at all? Are you doing anything fun? And I was like, Yes, I got out of bed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm doing something fun right now. Dabs As tears eyes, from the face. Exactly. Your eyes are just drooping and you're like, been I got softer tissues. Well. It's fun. So there's actually a joke between our two programs how you can tell people that are doing more physical therapy versus med students. And physical therapists always have like their. Pre-made uh, lunches. They're outside. They're exercising. They all have beautiful skin. Yeah. They're so happy. And these are the vet students. We have our Red Bull and our Snickers bar, and we have like hoods on, and we're just like, don't talk to us. Hell. So that's that's a joke. They're like, yeah, all the attractive people are in PT. So. I know all of us playing spike ball outside. What? Oh yeah, it's is a that thing. like? Yeah. I'm gonna go. You guys have to tell me what, like, when the PT students are out in their natural habitat and when the medical students are. And I'm just gonna go sit and watch and be like, From play the game one. of be like, who is PT? Who is med? Who is occupational therapy? You won't see any of the med students outside. Okay, at least not to me and my study group. Or they'll be like hissing at the sun as they're like, why am I? In the corner, they're all coming out. <laughs> oh God, it's too bright. <laughs> There are moments when we're under, we're getting ready for a big final exam, and I had a friend that was like, "Hey, how are you doing?" And I just looked at them and I was like, mm-hmm. "I don't even think I made a noise. <laughs> or I didn't make a word. I just made noises." Like, <laughs> Official gremlin status. Yes. Yeah, kind of going back to um, embodying your health and mental health during grad school. We were kind of talking to this, but I think it's so important, even though grad school is so hard and it's you are studying for the majority of your day but like try to find some balance in that you know so it's like we were talking about burnout and it is really easy to get burnt out in grad school whether in your medical school the pharmacy program or PT like it is a very hard program but you also need to make time for yourself because there's no you're, it's just not good for your health. It's just There's no, it's not good. Yeah, it's not. I'm like, I can tell you firsthand that my health really took a decline a couple months ago. And I think it's just like me and Natalie were saying, I was burning the candle at both ends and very stressed, not having balance. But like, even if it's five minutes of going for a walk and finding little things, even like having a gratitude journal, you know, I know it's really hard to find the joy while you're in grad school like it's while very kissing easy at the sun it's very easy to just have like a negative mindset and be like oh my god my life sucks right now because I know how it feels but it's like finding those little joys even going to have coffee with your friend we can go have t- coffee together and just have and five cry. minutes and cry we can cry but then we have to find at least five minutes to be like okay what are you grateful for within your day you know like find little things to make yourself happy and find that balance because it's hard and you still want to be able to maintain your health while you're in school and that's that's why we're in the healthcare field because of health right you give up your own health to get ready to help others exactly it's hard beautiful i 
I think I completely agree, and I think that it, it is easy in med school to get bogged down because everyone else is so stressed, and I think there's this environment mm-hmm. where talking about, oh, I'm so depressed, and oh, I'm so sad, and I think that it, it just becomes so normal that having somebody that can pull you out of that and say, you know, it's a great day. I think for me, it's more okay, I can sit and study for 10 hours, but it's that feeling of always being behind. Mm-hmm. I have never felt, not once in med school, even if I get through all the material, I have never felt like I was fully on top of what I was learning or mm-hmm. that I was done studying. So I think more than just having to sit for, I mean, when I was getting ready for my cardiovascular pulmonary and renal final, that was a big one. Yeah, it's a mouthful. Because <laughs> um, we're doing these three huge systems. I remember I was studying for 13 hours a day for three weeks, and I still felt behind. And I, I feel that. I remember I went to go see... It's more crying. I went to go see my professor, and he was so great. Shout out to Dr. Rendon. He's awesome. Um, I went to go see him, and it was right before our final... And it was two days before our final, and I, um... Sorry, we're bumping uglies. No, I love it. <laughs> I feel loved out. Come here, go. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was right before our final, and I sat down, I was like, okay, just have some questions. Um, so I pull up my computer, and I just look at him, and he goes, okay, so he asked me something about sodium channels within the nephrons of the kidney. And, I, and it's a relatively simple question based on all the other material. And I just looked at him, and I felt so overwhelmed, and I just started crying. Aww. And I think, too, just having, going back to what you were saying, having people or having things that pull you out of that mindset um, of just being overwhelmed, of being scared, <laughs> being nervous, yeah, um, kind of getting jolted out of your anxiety is what we mm-hmm. sometimes call it, I think is so important. And working out is great. I need to do it yeah. more. Natalie, can help me? Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> I think, too, in grad school, it becomes so easy because it comes kind of like a, a culture of that negative mindset where it's like, oh, my God, my life sucks. You know, like, I hate this. I hate school. Like, we have to study all the time. But it's like just finding those little moments of positivity and, like, for physical therapy, like we go out and, and no, it's just because I'm the same way. I promise. I'm, I'm not saying that. And like, I don't want that to come off in a certain way because I'm saying like, it's so easy. Like I think all grad students go through it and I was the same way. Like, Oh my God, I hate this. Like someone be like, Oh, how's school going? I'm like, shut up. Yeah. I don't even say anything. It's just like silence. Like mm. I contemplate running in the street. Does that answer your question? Yeah. But kind of going into like your success in school, like you always get through exams, you know, like I feel like leading up to an exam, it's always so stressful. And I'm the same way. Like I would stress so much and like that fear of failure is so scary because the stakes are so high, but then you get through the exam and it's fine. You know, your stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like trying to enjoy the journey a little bit and not be as stressed. I know it's hard. It's easier to say than do Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I do the same thing. I like get so overwhelmed and I'm so scared and Ryan is my emotional support person. (laughs) But like knowing that it's going to be okay and you're going to get through the exam and like you're doing this work for a reason. And also sometimes it's counterintuitive to just be so scared and study for the X amount of time rather than like 
studying and it taking five minutes to do something that's productive for your mental health, you know, because I feel like it's more productive in that sense because then you're like, your brain's a little bit more in a learning state rather than a stressful state because mm-hmm. you're scared about failing, Yeah, if that makes sense. Because I'm the same way. Like my first year of PT school, I really had to learn that because I was like, didn't do anything. I would get home, study for the amount of time that I had and then go to bed, wake up, do the whole thing over again. And I had no balance. And I found that whenever I did make time to like go on a hike on the weekends or five minutes to just close my books, not think about it, or even 30 minutes to just go work out. Like I was much more productive in my studies and my work because I gave myself that time to be a little bit more healthy and happy. And being so stressed, but can I give you guys some suggestions? That yeah, I give like a lot of my clients that maybe let's be clients. Love that. I feel like I, <laughs> whenever Natalie would give me advice when we were in here, I was like, Yes, that makes so much sense. And then I try to do it, I'm like, Because, <laughs> like, what going off of what Gabby says, you know, because a lot of studies have shown that we are a lot more productive if we do take breaks, mm-hmm. but you know, like she also said, that's a lot easier said than done because, like, when you get into a flow you know, it's hard to take that break. And it's also hard to like essentially give yourself permission to have a break. Cause then we get into that guilt complex of like, well, if I take a break, then I'm not, you know, trying as hard. I'm not studying or I'm losing that time. And it's hard to like, we know that taking a break is helpful for productivity for kind of refreshing your brain, but it's very hard to actually initiate the start of the break. So some things that, you know, could potentially work that I encourage you guys to try as I call them, I call them day, um, frequent mind breaks. I don't know. You can come up with a better name. But essentially, like, when I have a client or myself or you guys that are very stressed <laughs> out, have a lot on their plate, and have a hard time finding that balance. Natalie has a type. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why we all fit in together. <laughs> it's like, you know, be what I – so, like, what I do for myself um, – because like my stress, you know, is obviously not as much as yours or different, but it's, you know, it's still there. I still get overwhelmed sometimes. So like what I'll do is at the beginning of the week, I'll, you know, I'll look at my Google calendar and I'll see, you know, where I have tasks. And then in my like planner, I'll write down my non-negotiables on the left side. So that's everything that I have to get done. That's usually client work related. That's for me, that is the gym. Cause for, if I don't work out, people start getting injured. Um, <laughs> and like, so my, I make my non-negotiables. And then on the right side, I make a list of like things that I would like to get done for the day. But if I don't, it's not the end of the world if it gets pushed to tomorrow or the weekend or whatever. And then I look at it and in between my non-negotiables, I schedule in one to three minutes or five minutes if I can or 10, you know, kind of just depends on the break time between it. I schedule in a block on my calendar so I can't put anything in there for however amount of time that I need for that day and then I set that timer to like let's say it's three minutes I'll set my timer for three minutes and then during that three minutes I give myself complete permission to do whatever I feel I need during those three minutes so if it's just sitting mindlessly scrolling on my phone if it's literally my neighbors probably think I'm weird because I'll like I'll go out front and just stand in the sun and just like stand there for three minutes and then go back inside or like usually Harley's in the office with me so I'll just like snuggle with her or sometimes it's stretching and because it's already scheduled in before it happens it breaks that cycle of oh well I don't want to take a break right now or I can't because it's already in there it's a task that you have to do now it's part of your non-negotiable so being a little like 
proactive with it and scheduling it in ahead of time so that when you know the google calendar alert pops up and it's like you have a mental break in five minutes you're like oh cool nice awesome like it's a task i have to do it like we're a lot more motivated to do things if it's a task that's scheduled versus you know because i saw like this one example one time where it was like if your boss tells you to be at work at 8 a.m or to go take a 15 minute break like you're going to do it but if you tell yourself to do it you're not going to do it and it's like why is that so you essentially have to like trick your brain into thinking (laughs) this is my boss (laughs) this is my boss telling me so that's one thing you can do um another thing for like stress management if you're feeling super overwhelmed is take out your phone, open up the voice memos app, and literally just word vomit everything that you're feeling. You know, even if it's just you crying into your voice memo, like whatever it is, word vomit it. And then sometimes that can create a cathartic feeling. (laughs) But it's nice because it's convenient instead of like sitting down and typing or writing out your feelings or whatever. Because I'm not a journaler. I don't like that. (laughs) So like for me, it's easier like just to open up my voice memos and just allow myself to just scream cry I just feel so silly. war vomit yeah. whatever you just press recording you're like i feel like shit <laughs> you like, listen to it you're like oh <laughs> you're like oh yeah well that's the thing is you don't have to listen to it but you released it you let that mm-hmm. feeling leave your body so it's not taking up space or energy anymore mm-hmm. um you know if it is like a lot of stress and you're trying to figure out why you're overwhelmed or what you can control sometimes listening back to the voice memo can be helpful because then you realize like what is actually stimulating those emotions because a lot of times we get stressed and we don't ever really take the time to figure out like you know for instance with what your guys example like you're stressed all the time because of coursework because of the exams and stuff but it's like okay is it actually the coursework and exams or is it that internal sensation of like what if I fail because the stakes aren't high enough so that's an emotion that you then have to kind of process why that's there and it may be because you guys do care so much because you want to be the best oncologist you want to be the best physical therapist so to you in your mind in order to be that you have to have a's on all your exams you have to pass your blocks you have to pass whatever it may be so it's not the actual like i mean the coursework can be causing stress but it's not like the actual coursework that's causing that like I'm depressed sensation or like I'm overwhelmed sensation it's more of like a deeper thing that a lot of times we don't want to assess or figure out why because it's scary and intimidating to assess our own fears and you know why we feel the way we feel trust me as someone who doesn't like doing it I get it it's not fun but it's you know it because then when you actually identify what's causing you those feelings you then open up a pathway for you to be like okay well now how do I deal with those feelings or what do I you know, how do I, how do I reassure myself? And so that segues into the next thing that you can do. In addition to like what you said, identifying gratitude is like, take, I'll, I'll text you guys all this is like, take a second at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day and identify one to three or more if you want, but at least one thing that you are confident about yourself and what you're doing. So, like, if that's, you know, the the sodium channels and the nephron of the <laughs> kidney or whatever, like, say that. And, you know, and once again, you can say it into your voice memo if you're not a writing person. You can write it down. You can text it, whatever. But actually take that moment to identify one thing you at least feel confident about so that when you are self-doubting yourself or you are stressed out, you can bring that, like, to the forefront and focus on, it's like, okay, I didn't know, you know, the sodium channels in the kidney beforehand, but I do now. And I'm confident understanding how it works or, you know, whatever it does. Um, And then, you know, at the end of the day, too, you can also do like daily wins where you kind of reflect on your day because it's so easy to focus on everything that went wrong. 
and what didn't get accomplished, it's so hard to actually focus on like what did go well, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of small things get overlooked. Like for instance, this morning, I made my coffee really good and it's very yummy and that's a win for me. Like it doesn't have to be this like super poetic deep thing but just yeah I exactly like I was (laughs) that was my win yesterday I was like I actually took a shower no that's match exactly that's a big win that's great seriously like that's that is that brings that positive like sensation back (laughs) yes you put on socks that match like that is you know it may seem like not a big deal but if that is what actually helps you to feel happier and I like identify positive things and fucking yeah rock those mm-hmm. magic socks for the day and highlight it and stuff and so you know I that's my two cents. that meme where it's like new boots rocking and then you like <laughs> little heel heel click. <laughs> and even if like after the heel click you go and start crying at least you had that moment of like identifying something that's going well mm-hmm. in yeah. your day I love that because I think being intentional and Everything that we do in life is a habit that we create and we do over and over again. So you get used to it and it's very hard to sway from that habit. So like being intentional and being like, even if it's like every day you're like, oh my God, I I don't want to do my five gratitude things because you're just like in such a rut. But like if you do that every single day, then slowly you're going to be like, oh, you know what? I am grateful for these things or you know what? I am doing great. I do know the nephrons and the, <laughs> the kidneys. Are we I'm even a bad that right? Did you say nephrons? No. You know, I have to, I 100% agree. And as much as I think the culture is, oh, I'm stressed. And I had a, a, a friend of mine, he's in the Navy. And I was telling him one day, we were talking on the phone. And I was like, oh, I'm just feeling in. And he... I think got a little, I was maybe complaining for like 10 minutes. And he finally got to a point. He went, shut up. Stop it. And I was just like, what? You're supposed to be my friend. And I'm, I'm venting. He goes, you get five minutes to vent. I'm going to give you five minutes. And then you're done. You signed up for this. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And one thing that he asked me that was actually kind of profound, and it made me look at school differently. He goes, would you rather be doing anything else? And I really, I sat and thought about it and I said, even with all the stress, even with like all the material that we're learning, I love the material. Mm-hmm. And I think, I'm sure you feel the same. It's yes. this, like, I might be stressed out and I'm not eating very well and I have a severe caffeine addiction, 100%. <laughs> but I, I genuinely like, this is what I love and this is what I want to do. And so I think changing that mindset yeah. and having something um, to be thankful for and say, you know, I'm actually really thankful because I remember when I was applying, I would just sit there and be like, oh, please just, like, please just give me this. Mm-hmm. Please, I want it so bad. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I will pull up my acceptance email, which I actually read while we were in the yard. I know. Aww. So excited. And then we went and, like, I toured her around like a show pony. I was like, Allie got into med school. Look at Allie. She's going to be a doctor. <laughs> this is my show pony she's going to take first. <laughs> Um, but yeah, sometimes I'll pull that up and I'll say, wow, I remember that feeling. And it, it definitely does make me feel better. But thank you, Natalie, for all of that yes. really great advice. You should come talk to the med students. Okay. <laughs> you should really, though. You should give like a wellness talk, like at the beginning I mean, of like. I do like that. School. I was actually telling Gabby, like what I've, with doing what I do, I've realized that what I really care about, like working with people is great and it's awesome helping them, but 
I care more about like the education aspect of it. Like I would love to actually advance in my career to be like a speaker at seminars or for high schoolers or, you know, things like that where I come in and, you know, help people understand that nutrition is not a complex thing. It can be very simple if you, you know, like you said, change your mindset on it and Mm -hmm. understand like, you know, you can have any type of food you want, but it's making a choice around food that allows you to feel good. I think what you're doing now and I mean just listening to some of the advice sometimes I I mean so I will say Natalie and I've talked about it but when I was younger I had an eating disorder and I think a lot and when I look at statistics so many young women Mm -hmm. especially in high school oh yeah have issues surrounding Mm -hmm. their food and and body image and body dysmorphia and I think I'm still definitely trying to get through it but there are moments when I'm like okay I'm just gonna like, oh, I feel guilty about this, and I'm supposed to be in med school, and I'm having to, like, I have to have all this health and be a pillar, and because they're always like, yeah, you guys are going to be representing, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> but um, I think what you're, what you're doing is you're allowing up, like, saying this is a safe space, this is something that you don't have to fear, and I think that's so important for people, and I think you would be an incredible speaker. Mm-hmm. Both of you would. I mean, what both of you have said on this channel is pretty amazing i i watch it and i'll be like yeah i can eat a high calorie breakfast yes you can (laughs) it's literally called breaking the fast you're supposed to yes as an italian i have it's it's a high calorie breakfast but it's not super nutritious we have like a cappuccino and then like a cornetto or something oh yeah i love that whole thing yeah Mm. it's not great but but it tastes good and it makes you feel good there's nourishing of the soul and there's nourishing of the body and it's important to have a balance of both Mm mm-hmm that is very true, especially when we were going through GI. It made me a little nervous, but I was like, I gotta nourish the body a little more. So I started taking multivitamin. <laughs> like, mm. Make sure you're taking your multivitamin with like dairy or something to act as a buffer for the stomach acid, so it actually gets into the intestines where it's needed. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You, I think you would have loved our GI. Oh, I love the GI so much. <laughs> I'm gonna send you all of our Please notes. Please do. One yeah. of my one of my favorite memories with Allie is we were at your parents house for a birthday of someone that we don't need to say who it oh, is yes. but we were we were at a birthday yeah we were at a birthday <laughs> and his friends were there and she invited me to be her girlfriend for the night <laughs> and all of his friends were there and she had just like you were in year one of med school like you're going through mm-hmm. your anatomy class oh, <laughs> and we're sitting at the table and somehow one of the people started asking questions about it and you she's so passionate which was makes the story so much great it's yeah she's just sitting there and she's going into full detail no (laughs) discretion to people's discomfort that they're expressing yeah well whatever people if you have a weak (laughs) stomach get it stronger um that's my nutrition (laughs) and she's like she's like going into great detail about like you know the um it's not corpse. What are they called? Like, we call well, them donors. Donors. There we go. I knew there was a more. Donors. There we go. I knew there was a you know more friendly word for it than the corpse. The dead people. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and she's just going to great detail. And there's this one girl at the party who's like, I think I'm gonna throw up. This and Allie's just like, Yeah, I don't care. Shut up. Out of here. And this is what happens. Like we put his hand on our hand and made a glove and like. And 
she's just and it's funny because like she can tell like she knows the people that are at the party are uncomfortable so she's just looking at me telling me the story audibly for everybody else here so they can still be involved but I love it like I love like I was trying to convince Gabby to sneak me into the cadaver lab so I can see it so I can see the insides of a dead body which I don't know what that says about me but um and like so I like she's just like we're just you know she's staring into my pupils telling me about all this stuff and everybody exactly (laughs) watching my reaction as I learn about all these things that she's doing (laughs) and it was just so funny because everyone at the table like she said because we're eating dinner or dessert or something they're all just sitting there like what what is this and like one girl's like freaking out and Ellie's like sorry okay I'm almost done and then like 30 minutes later she's still going I'm I, don't worry I'm I, you know I'm at the I'm at the chest we still have the abdomen and the legs to get to so it's like hold on you know if you don't like this go inside <laughs> it's so interesting though I love it it's like you learn so much from your donors and it's just amazing it's amazing and to see like all the different donors that like maybe I think we had some that had like emphysema some that had cancer and like learning from all these people is just incredible yeah, I'll never, I'm never gonna forget my donor. That Ever. What I, what I learned from him and his sacrifice to medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you have um, Dr. Hill as your professor? You know, Dr. Hill was part of our lab. Um, I know he is mainly, mm-hmm. he's mainly for the PTP yeah. students, but actually, we don't even go into the same detail that you guys have to go into. Ours is pretty. Yeah. We do all the muscles, we do the major nerves, and then we do like innervations, and then we do. Um, Really arteries. We didn't even focus so much on veins, but like mm-hmm. you guys go really hard into everything. It. Yeah, yeah, we had Doctor Jordan and Doctor Hartley. Okay, but Doctor Hill was there also, and they were oh, great He's professors. He's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. He's really a good professor. Yeah. But, okay. <laughs> well, to change the topic away from. <laughs> Have you ever like? Did you know that flaying skin? <laughs> was like a type of torture back in like the vikings day like they would like flail the skin off and hang them up as like a warning no i didn't know that fact <laughs> it wasn't in my daily facts that that i see oh yeah, yeah. that yeah i think we learned about that yeah it's, i mean it's all topic and just you know i'm glad we're out of the um viking torture days because although so i feel like do you know what blood eagling is no. no. Okay, real quick. Do you know what curb stomping is? Oh my god, why what is, what is wrong with me? Curb stomping? I didn't know either. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel a little better. It makes me feel worse. <laughs> it's a type of hurting someone. But um a blood eagle <laughs> So blood eagle was in Viking time. And um it's like where you lay someone who's done something wrong because like so in viking mythology or nordic mythology it's important that you die in battle because then the valkyrie come down and Mm -hmm. escort you from battle to the um halls of valhalla so you can dine with odin and be with your ancestors and all the stuff Mm -hmm. um and so like if you didn't die in battle but you did something worthy of death amongst your fellow viking people um you Oftentimes they would blood eagle them. And if you didn't scream, this is a very important part. If you didn't scream during it, then you were still a warrior and you would be accepted into Odin's halls. And it was essentially like, you know, like you kind of died in battle, essentially. Like you could still get the benefits of dying in battle if you didn't scream when you got blood eagled. And so what it is is they like kind of perch you over a rock and your hands are holding the rock. 
<laughs> and they make cuts down your back and they pull your lungs out and place them on your back so it looks like an eagle's with their wings folded and you're not supposed to scream or make any noise during any of that and if you do then you're essentially a pussy and you don't get to go to Valhalla <laughs> but if you don't scream then the Valkyrie will come down and escort your soul to Odin's dining hall Emily, have you ever seen Saw? Yeah, I love Saw. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I don't. I feel like people are going <laughs> to think I'm a sociopath. <laughs> it would, that remind, have you ever seen the Thriller movie? It messed me up really bad. Midsummer or Midsommar? No, not yet, but I want oh to. Isn't that a culty one? Yeah, it's what is terrifying about that. So there's, I'm not going to give it away, but you'll see something kind of like that but what's terrifying about that film and it's beautifully done i mean i actually think the the cinematography of it is really incredible but what messed me up was i would have done every single thing that the characters did i mean you know how in horror films you're like why are you going towards the noise oh yeah why are you like just leave yeah just leave (laughs) don't be stupid and also the whole thing takes place during the day um, Which also kind of messed me up. That's not correct. Only spooky things are supposed to happen at night. <laughs> so watch it and get back to me on it. It okay. messed me up for a while. Okay, yeah, I want to watch it. Maybe we'll watch it tonight. I can't do like scary movies with scary images, but if it's torture, it's fine. It's a walk in the park. This one, a lot of people are like, oh, it's not even scary. It's more of a thriller. Is it, it like psychologically scary? I think it's mm. extremely psychologically. Noise. Yeah. Things that are real and could actually happen, those are scary. No, I love that more because then I learn how to beat Saw. Or, like, I learn how to play his game and win. Or, like, it's so much easier to fight someone that's alive than a demon. <laughs> Which we went over this in our last podcast, and I still stand by it. Like, I would much rather get kidnapped and tortured than possessed. Because I'll live. <laughs> Two options. Mm. No. Not, 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 not be possessed. Like, mm. <laughs> yes. Possess me harder. <laughs> Spirit daddy. <laughs> or actually, demon daddy. That sounds demon different. Daddy. Double D. Big day. Big day. <laughs> Well, I feel like we, we've had a very good conversation today. Have we? That has taken many different turns, and I love it. I'm going to embody our health now. Okay. Answer your question. Um, I think, when I think of embodying your health, I guess to put it in a simple term is to manifest what it is that you want and then actually do that and I think I remember hearing a long time ago somebody told me the best way to actually feel confident and to get confidence of self and to be self-actualized is to just do what you say you're going to do and so I think that for me embodying your health I think that a lot of it is manifesting or thinking how do I want to be healthy both mentally spiritually physically and then trying to actually make that a reality i love that so much i love that that was a really good answer like following through on what you tell yourself you're going to do i think is one of the greatest forms of Mm self-love because you're showing up for yourself like you're actually you know prioritizing yourself and doing doing what you say you're gonna do yeah and i think that you can have all this information and know how to do the things, but unless you actually do it, like nothing's going to be a reality and you're never going to be that person that you know how to be unless you actually do that thing. I completely agree.
You ladies are so lovely. You are so lovely. <laughs> oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> You're so lovely. <laughs> no, but really, thank you for coming on today. You were great in... Like we said before, you're going to be an amazing doctor, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, you're going to impact a lot of people in a positive way. And I'm excited to see everything. You're very that empathetic. You're do. More oh, doctors need so to be empathetic, much. like you. Thank you, ladies. Well, you guys will be a part of my journey. Yeah, so. hopefully not as patients. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, well thanks um, for listening. Yeah. Bye.